Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Melillo, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. On December 30th, 2021, the No Surprises Act went into effect. Broadly speaking, the act aims to curb surprise bills Americans may incur when they receive care from an out-of-network provider. In response to the act's implementation, the American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, and others sued, claiming the law jeopardizes patients' access to care on the basis that providers and insurers must negotiate these costs when they arise, and if an agreement is not made, an arbitration process for determining fair payment will take place. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Dr. Mark Miller, the Executive Vice President of Healthcare at Arnold Ventures. In our conversation, Miller lays out how this law came about, its implications for patients, and what might happen if lawsuits against it succeed. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Miller. To begin, can you state your name, title, and tell us a little bit about Arnold Ventures? Yeah, um, I'm Mark Miller. Uh, My title is Executive Vice President of Healthcare at Arnold Ventures, which is a, a philanthropy. And um, uh, what, uh, what my portfolio is, is aimed at is, is the affordability of healthcare. Um, we think that there are many issues in the healthcare, US healthcare system, you know, uh, inequitable um, access and services, uh, mediocre quality, there's fragmentation, there's administrative bloat. But we think a real root issue that needs to be dealt with is affordability. And we think that um, there are dollars that are traveling through the system that could be taken out of the system without compromising service, without compromising access. And just to say that a, a little bit differently, in the end, the cost of the healthcare system kind of falls on households, employers, and taxpayers. And it's those interests that we come and we approach the, um, uh, the healthcare system and the affordability issue. You know, in the end, it's the household whose wages, out of pockets, and taxes pay for everything. And we don't think households are often well represented in the debate. Another point I wanna make, because in this particular uh, podcast, we'll be talking about surprise billing and there are interests, you know, hospital groups, physician groups, private equity groups who, you know, criticize us as being um, a shill for the insurance industry. And the two things I wanna say about that are, once again, we're a philanthropy and as a philanthropy, we don't take money from anybody. We give out money for things like research and. Uh, policy analysis and and that type of thing. And the second thing is in my agenda, it's not just this issue that I look at. I look at insurance sector issues, PBMs, GPOs, hospitals, uh, physicians, drug manufacturing. I mean, we, we, we have policies, research and policies aimed broadly at the issue of affordability throughout the system. So I think sometimes people think we're picking on them, uh, but the, the point I guess I would say is, is that 
we're kind of picking on everybody. It's just today we're talking about uh, surprise billing. Great, thank you so much for that introduction. And getting right into the questioning, um, so navigating the health insurance landscape and being billed for out-of-network care is a major gripe many Americans have with the current health system. Can you elaborate on the extent to which surprise medical building is a problem in this country? Yeah, um, I, I think what I would say, and uh, this is almost something else that I, I should have mentioned in the, in the introduction. Um, you know, when I talk about hospitals or um, physicians or, you know, private equity, I, I'm, I, I understand that it's not all of the actors in, you know, those categories, that there are, um, you know, first of all, I mean, they're professional and technically competent, you know, hospitals, physicians, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, so I'm not saying and trying to vilify, you know, like an entire um, uh, sector, but there are actors who are engaged in these activities. And I think that that uh, tends to be concentrated around certain actors and also uh, variable across um, the country. And so I think, you know, the, the nature of the problem is, is that First of all, it's concentrated around providers where the patient doesn't have a choice. So the emergency room, uh, you're not picking your doctor or even picking, picking your emergency room, for example. Uh, the ambulance that takes you there, you, you don't choose. When you go into the hospital, let's say for surgery, um, you would you might pick that hospital because it's in your insurance network and you might pick the surgeon because that surgeon is in your uh, network, but you don't pick an array of providers beyond that, like an anesthesiologist or a radiologist as the case may be in the hospital. And those are sources of surprise bills, kind of the emergency room, the ambulance, the anesthesiologist, the radiologist, uh, that type of thing. And I just want to say again, most doctors don't do this in general. And I don't think at, I, I'm sure uh, most emergency or at least all emergency room or anesthesiologists, for example, engage in this kind of practice. So there's a certain amount of variability, certainly across um, hospital and physician, and then even with uh, a variability across geography. But to try and give you a sense of the uh, problem, uh, I've, we, we have research and analysis that says things like, you know, one in five emergency room visits involve a surprise bill. If you mix the ambulance into that um, uh, equation, it gets to be more like 40% of those visits. You know, 79% of emergency ground ambulances involve uh, an out of network or a surprise bill. 70% uh, of air ambulance involves, uh, you know, an out of network or surprise bill. Um, you know, for a patient in network, let's say if you go to an in network um, uh, hospital for surgery, about 37% of those visits involve like say an anesthesiologist rendering a, um, a, a surprise bill. To think about it in dollar terms, there's some research that um, estimated that 
it's adding about $40 billion in spend to the healthcare system uh, on an annual basis. And to give you some sense of like what we're talking about, uh, this, there's research that's been done that says out of network bills, that shows that out of network bills are 800% of what Medicare pays when you get one from an emergency room doctor or you get one from an anesthesiologist. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is it's concentrated in certain areas. It's variable across hospitals and, and physicians. Um, it is adding dollars uh, to the system. And when you get the bill, it can be quite, uh, it can be quite high. There's just a couple of other things that I'll say here. There are at least two, you know, two comments beyond the ones I made. You know, you asked about surprise medical uh, billing, and um, some of the issue. You know, I think of the surprise uh, billing problem as, a, you know, the tip of the iceberg. To be real cliche about it, or at least just one aspect of the problem, there has been a substantial amount of consolidation in the healthcare markets. You know, hospitals buying hospitals, hospitals buying physician practices, physician practices consolidating, you know, private equity firms buying physician practices and consolidating them. And consolidation leads to higher prices. You know, in some of the research that we were doing, I said that the out of network surprise bills might average 800 percent of Medicare, but in network, they average 400% of Medicare. And so the, the issue beyond surprise billing or that surprise billing is part of is a broader issue of consolidation, driving prices up and making healthcare more unaffordable. And so, you know, one thing before we leave the problem definition discussion, I want to point out is surprise billing is only part of it and that there is a much broader problem of affordability. As you probably know, as the cost of healthcare has increased over time, employers who provide you know, insurance in the commercial market have one way that they've responded is, is to have larger premiums, larger deductibles, larger cost sharing. And so patients are carrying more households and patients are carrying more of the cost and that has, you know, created, uh, you know, greater affordability um, issues. And so I also wanted, you know, before we left the problem definition to uh, be sure that people who are listening to your podcast understand surprise medical billing, big problem, but part of a larger problem even uh, uh, for affordability. On December 30th, 2021, the No Surprises Act went into effect to help bring an end to this practice of surprise medical billing. So can you go over what this bill does and what it does not do? Yeah. And so um, here's how we do. And, you know, unfortunately, like the U.S. healthcare system in general, it is a bit complex and the patient has to be, you know, continue to be somewhat, not somewhat, needs to be vigilant here. But here's what it does. And, and I mean, the, there, there are good things here and good things for patients. And, and I don't wanna lose that in, in this conversation. So for example, now, 
if you re receive care in emergency, you know, emergency care in an emergency room setting, you can't be balanced bill. And that is the source of a, of a lot of these bills. So even if you go to an emergency room that's out of network because the ambulance takes you to the closest emergency room because it's an emergency, you can't be balanced bill. The second thing it does is back in my previous answer uh, where I was talking about the situation where you go in network for surgery. So let's be clear here. You have a, a scheduled surgery at an in-network hospital with an in-network surgeon. Now, before this bill, let's say an anesthesiologist would enter the picture not long before the surgery, you would not have picked this particular doctor and that doctor could surprise bill you outside of your insurance. Under the new law, that can happen. There are sets of providers in network, anesthesiologists, radiologists, hospitalists, intensivists, who cannot balance bill you. And so you are protected from those kinds of balance bill. Now I wanna come back to that because there's a wrinkle in there, but the hit the other third big deal of the bill is that um, you can't be balance bill for air ambulance transportation. So if you're, you're in an air ambulance. So the summary point before I um, you know, add some complexity, if you're in an emergency room, you cannot be balanced bill. If you go in network and there's and get services, there are many specialties that are now not allowed to balance bill you. Say that anesthesiologist in the um, um, a surgery situation. And if you go through an air ambulance, um, you can't be balanced bill. Now. Let's go back to that in-network situation. So you went for surgery, in-network hospital, in-network surgeon, the anesthesiologist can't bill you, as well as many other in-hospital specialties. But it could be that a physician does get involved who is not one of those specialties, and they have the potential to balance bill you. But in that situation, they are supposed to present a form to you. They're supposed to, in which you sign and say it is acceptable to get an out of network bill. They are supposed to give you a good faith estimate. I think it's three, at least three days prior to the service. And on that form, they are supposed to um, also indicate that there are in network alternatives. So what I wanna say is, even in network, the patient has to be vigilant. They are largely protected, but there are situations where they may be handed a form in which the provider is saying, can I balance bill you? Can I surprise them? Can I balance bill you? And the patient should very carefully re review that form and agree or disagree. And they should have gotten an estimate in advance of that. Now, now, I have mentioned uh, just a moment ago that um, you can't be balanced bill or surprise bill for an air ambulance, but ground ambulances were left out of the legislation. And there's probably um, 
some reasons for that, which I can get into if you'd like to discuss them. But at the simple point is you still can be balanced bill for ground ambulance. And that is certainly something that we care about and will continue uh, to pursue. And I do think that there's interest uh, uh, on the Hill uh, in the Congress to also address that issue. But there is a, an added layer of complexity that I think in the end, uh, people left it out of the bill in order to move the bill forward, uh, recognizing that this problem uh, still existed. In response to this No Surprises Act, the American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, and others are suing, claiming that dispute negotiations mandated by the act will benefit commercial health insurance companies over providers. Can you offer some thoughts on these concerns? You know, as I mentioned to you, there is um, the, the, the surprise billing, you know, processes going on and, and the bills could be, and I'm sure you and your um, uh, audience have read the Sarah Cliff, the Kaiser Health News, you know, the examples of some of the bills that were out there, you know, that, you know, the woman who was reeled through the, wheeled through the emergency room on the way to delivery and got her bills related to the delivery and just an added on emergency room uh, bill. Uh, you know, the teacher who was taken to the closest hospital when he had a heart attack and ended up with a $100,000, you know, surprise bill. Um, one that particularly bothered me was the woman who drove her daughter, I believe, to the emergency room parking lot because she had eaten something or taken a medicine or a pill that she wasn't supposed to take. And the mother was afraid of a toxic reaction but she wouldn't take her kid into the emergency room until the reaction occurred because she had been to the emergency room and gotten a surprise bill before. And you know, fortunately the kid didn't have the reaction, but I mean, being afraid to seek care is just like a real problem. So, you know, that's the, and there was a lot of interest on the part of the Congress to do something about this. So Congress approached this issue and they sort of borrowed a concept from Medicare, where in Medicare, if you go to a managed care uh, provider, you know, that's, that's one way that you can receive your, your care and providers can get paid. But if you go out of network from that, you can only be charged what would have been charged in the traditional Medicare system. And so their starting point was just to put a limit if you got an out-of-network surprise bill, just put a limit on how much could be paid. And that limit, uh, people talked about, um, you know, a, a percentage of Medicare, like 150% of Medicare, or the notion of like the average commercial sector payment. And so that's where the debate started. Just a simple, you know, compute the average payment, uh, commercial payment in the market. That's what you get if uh, you, you, uh, bill out of network or if you present a surprise bill. But the, the groups that you name there, the private equity groups, the physician groups, the hospital groups, you know, rejected that. And um, they uh, uh, wanted, they started to drive the debate towards arbitration. 
And so there were a series of compromises that were hybrid fixes. And, and I may think some of the reason for this is because there's some state experience with arbitration, New Jersey, New York, I, I think, in which the settlements had been quite favorable to the providers because the providers were able to kind of escalate what the settlements were in the arbitration process. And so those groups pushed towards arbitration. There were several hybrid comp compromises where there was a cap, but then you could go to arbitration if the bill was above $700 or $1,200, I remember the specific numbers, but that type of fix. And the same groups that you named rejected that. And so, there, as I said, there was a fair amount of um, pressure on the Congress to do this. The Ways and Means Committee introduced a, a bill that was basically solely arbitration. And in the end, that is where the um, uh, Congress uh, compromised. And I mean, our concern about that as you know, Arnold Ventures, the philanthropy is first off, arbitration itself, just the process itself adds cost to the healthcare system that all of us have to pay. Says now everybody has to engage in this process and that's gonna be built into your premiums. But the other thing we were concerned about is depending on how you do arbitration, it could be inflationary, that it could drive the prices up. And while you don't get a surprise bill, those prices end up in, in your premium. So you're protected at point of care, but you're not necessarily protected uh, from those prices going into your premium. And when you track the press at the end of that process, the statements were that the providers had prevailed. And so that was the story. Then we get on the, you know, the other side of the legislative process and the regulation is put in place. And the uh, you know, committees of jurisdiction were very clear about this and they have published letters on the legislative history that their intent was to say that the, um, the qualified payment amount, think of it as just the median commercially, um, uh, I'm sorry, the median negotiated commercial rate would be the dominant factor that the arbiter would consider in settling a dispute over a surprise bill. And, they're very, the, uh, the legislative history letters from the committees are very clear that they, they wrote that section separately, they defined how it was done, and they intended it to be the dominant factor. Then there were a set of other factors that could be considered if they were credible and would change that qualified payment amount. And this is things like, uh, you know, the market share, share held by the um, uh, out-of-network provider, quality of care, uh, that type of thing. And what the lawsuits are arguing is, is that all of those factors should have been given equal weight. And the lawsuits tend to be around that, that all of those factors should be given equal weight, or alternatively, the lawsuits are saying that the way they implemented it using an interim final rule 
was not the correct way to implement the law. So going off of your last answer, can you elaborate on what will happen if these lawsuits succeed? And do you anticipate this going to the Supreme Court? Okay, I, I, I want to say, I, I, you know, the legal process, you know, I'm involved in research and policy a lot and feel relatively confident about, you know, the kinds of things I've talked about uh, t- to date. The, the legal pro I'm not an expert in that area. The legal process is more complicated for me to understand. But here's what I would say. If these lawsuits succeed, succeed on the reconsideration of the qualified payment amount, I believe it will escalate rates. And it, in a sense, the gains that providers extracted from the system using the surprise billing tactics will get built into the premiums and potentially go up. And so I think that is you know, a risk. I think a second problem that could potentially surface from the lawsuits is confusion. So if, you know, it's now the law of the land, uh, people you know, are guessing, not guessing, but estimating, I guess, that um, these bills will start to surface and go to arbitration between now and March. If it is unclear at that point, then there's gonna be, you know, from the courts, then there's going to be confusion about how to proceed. Is the patient protected? Does it go into arbitration? If the arbitration is occurring, what is the arbiter supposed to consider? So there's confusion. I think that is a very real possibility. And then I guess the third outcome, although no lawsuit has asked for this explicitly, but if it's confusing, or if it needs to be litigated, or if they send the agency back to reconsider the rule, then I think there's the potential that these protections are delayed or interrupted, depending on how you wanna think about that. And I think that would be really unfortunate. And the other thing I would say about sending the agency back to consider these other factors, what I find somewhat disingenuous about the arguments on the part of the hospitals, the physicians, those groups, is they talk about this equal weighting, but they have not presented a set of analytics to implement it. Like, how do you measure it? And if you do measure it, which way does it influence the ultimate settlement? And I also think that there are issues in here that they don't want the government litigating. I mean, does a more or less experienced physician get paid more or less? There's lots of physicians who would argue that the physician experience, this is among physicians, shouldn't mean that they get paid more, that all physicians are doing the same thing and they should be paid the same. Um, There's an issue about complexity of care. That generally goes into the coding system and would be reflected in the QPA. So exactly what they're looking for there is unclear. And I think in some ways, they, they don't want the government really litigating the, these things. They would rather just say to the arbiter, you have to consider all of this and not give them guidance. And I think if they don't give them guidance, it's going to be a very in, unpredictable and frustrating system for everybody, including the providers. 
So that's kind of some of the scenarios that I can think uh, come out of this. Does it get to the Supreme Court? I'm not versed enough to know. It will be in the courts. How far it moves up the chain is hard for someone like me to say. I see. And going off of that, you know, as we've talked about during this interview, complexity of the healthcare system is a major problem, um, especially when these new laws come into play and there might be gaps where, you know, providers have to become familiar with the law and things like that. Um, so do you have any main takeaways from this act that you would want patients to keep in mind and you would want them to know? Yeah, and I think there's there's a few things I would say to you know your your average Joe or Jane. You know, first of all, I mean as as much of the problems as, as I've tried to lay out here, because I still think we have several problems here. I think it's important to understand that there are some real protections for them. Again, the emergency room setting, a large part in the in network setting, the air ambulance, and those are real patient protections and that you won't, well, if you get a bill out of, uh, you know, if you get a, 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 an out of network bill or a surprise bill, you won't be liable for it in those situations. So that's good. And I think it's important for patients to know that. Now to your point about the complexity of the system, unfortunately, they're gonna have to be uh, vigilant as I you know, have kind of suggested um, before. I mean, you could be handed a form in which you sign away your, your protections by a particular provider, and you should very carefully read that form, figure out whether somebody's in or out of network, and figure out whether they're gonna give you an estimate that you can afford and that you're willing to sign away. And so patients should be very, um, you know, careful about what they sign. The second thing is, is if you get a bill, let's, let's just say, you know, very obvious example, you go to emergency room and you get an out of network bill, then you, um, you know, you have to report it to websites, call 800 numbers, you know, tell the provider, this is a surprise bill, you're not going to pay it and put it into the system so that the provider is not allowed to collect from you and that the provider uh, has to go and settle with the insurance company. And of course, there are providers who have to, as you just said a minute ago, internalize that and stop sending uh, the bills. Um, and then uh, I think, you know, the other unfortunate thing for, and I've mentioned this is, you know, you're going to be paying for the arbitration process, you know, for the average patient that's going to be built into your uh, premiums. And depending on how the courts sign uh, decide this, um, you know, you could still be facing escalating prices and therefore premiums because they're just built into your in-network rates instead of, you know, being billed um, out, out of network. And then, of course, the last thing I'll say is, is that you know, you're still at risk for ground ambulances. So as you touched on briefly in your last answer, can you go over any additional work that needs to be done when it comes to limiting surprise billing in the United States apart from this act? Yeah, okay, you know, step one, ground ambulances. You knew I was gonna say that, you know, so clearly that was left out. It needs uh, to be um, revisited. 
Um, number two, depending on the lawsuits, you know, this may need to be revisited either through the rule or through uh, law. And so, you know, my sense is, is that we, and by that, I mean, people such as myself in the policy world and hospitals, physicians, you know, that, uh, that world as well, need to understand that if these lawsuits either confuse things or stall things or ultimately send things back to the drawing board, um, you know, this work will have to be revisited. And one thing that the providers may not be anticipated is, may not anticipate is, is that if the wheels come off this in a big way and Congress comes back to it, my sense is they're going to go for simpler solutions than more complex solutions. Things like where they started, which is just to put a limit on the um, uh, out-of-network um, uh, billing. And then the last thing I would I would say to you, and I said this somewhere in this conversation, I think towards the beginning, is this is not the entire problem. It's not even the majority problem. The bigger problem is just fundamental affordability. The consolidation that is in, occurring in markets uh, throughout the country, and you know the provider markets, which gives them the ability to raise their prices. But there's consolidation all through the healthcare markets, the insurers, the PBMs, you know, drug manufacturers, and all of that is working against you know, the family that has to pay for all of this. And I think that issue, the issue of kind of consolidation and price setting in the US needs to be addressed because it's creating an, an affordability issue. And so far that issue is being dealt with by pushing more of the cost onto the consumer. And we're just gonna get more and more families, even with insurance who can't afford uh, healthcare or are afraid to seek healthcare, as I mentioned early on, or you know, we basically have a GoFundMe system where you, know, you incur these costs and then you go to your neighbor and beg for help in order to pay them. And so I think that is something that we uh, really need to stay uh, focused on. And this is just one manifestation of the problem. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, appreciate it uh, too. And uh, I hope you have a good week. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.